0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 28. I'm John, the executive producer here at Final Show Films, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and joining me today is Jack. Hey, everybody. I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And
1: Jeremy. Hello, I'm Jeremy. I am uh, at JThomas411mania on Twitter.
0: Jeremy, who has forgotten his Twitter handle, um, I always do.
1: A, for some reason, I don't know why. It's not a difficult handle to remember.
0: Uh, speaking of Twitter, uh, before we get started, those of you uh, who follow us on who follow me on Twitter at the very least, go check out my Twitter uh, my Twitter page, uh, where you should find a link, uh, having been retweeted several times, sending you to our first of four giveaways for our cognitive merchant friends uh, dice uh, dice. Cup. Uh, we are giving away a bespoke green leather dice cup, useful for carrying and rolling all the dice for your various tabletop RPG needs.
2: If you've ever uh, wanted to drink dice, now you've got a utensil for it.
0: Indeed, it is handmade, le- handmade and stitched leather, uh, leather uh, green, green, nice sort of green gradient leather with white stitching. Uh, it's the first of four giveaways that we're going to be doing via the Twitter account. So go check that out. The link, uh, follow the link uh, provided on in the post that talks about it. Um, in the tweet in the tweet that talks about it, in order to sign up, uh, you there are five different. In, you can you if you go through all the steps, you can get five separate entries to the giveaway, or you can just do one, uh, just by just by going through the link and retweeting the the initial uh, announcement. So, uh, so yeah,
2: employees that, and so. family members of Final Show Films may not compete.
0: <laughs> that is specifically me and Austin cannot compete. Right. <laughs> uh, so. <clears throat> Episode 28, titled The Sun Tree, stars Laura Bailey as Vaxalia, Taliesin Jaffe as Percy, Leo O'Brien as Vaxel Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlon, Travis Fillingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master. Previously, on Critical Role, they tried—they decided they were going to go after the Briarwoods in the in the aftermath of Tiberius, Buzz Song, and Old Lady to Death.
1: Because... because ageism
0: okay (laughs) i I was gonna say because so (laughs) we pick up up with a battle a large multi-legged lightning lizard blocks off the party as they roll initiative and percy begins the battle by firing multiple times at the creature before taking cover the rest of the cast whispering vengeance in reference to the shadow entity possibly possessing percy uh which I know it wasn't. I know it wasn't a thing that Matt, as the GM, did. But I do like the idea that there's just every once in a while there's just a random voice in Percy's head that goes vengeance. And if he ever notices it, it just goes up. Oh, nothing. Nothing. I didn't say anything. <laughs> vengeance. What? <laughs> hmm? uh, On oh, the lizard's turn, it moves forward and unleashes some form of lightning breath into Grog, Vex, and Trinket, or Grog. Yes, Vex and Trinket. Uh, They attempt to dodge, with Grog and Vex succeeding, but Trinket taking the brunt of the damage and falling unconscious, much to Vex, much to Laura Bailey's chagrin and anger. As
1: Uh, Trinket tends to do.
0: As Trinket tends to do, because uh, ranger pets aren't all that good for the Beastmaster Ranger in the core rules of 5e. I think this was... Needs up. They they put the ranger together before they released the revised ranger, I believe, so... Uh uh um,
2: Yep. Yeah, no, Revised Ranger had come out w- well after. <laughs>
0: yep. Uh, but in response, Vex returned fire with a hail of thorns, hitting both Grog and the creature. Grog now having been hit twice by magical effects prior to raging. <laughs> um, as it comes now to Grog's turn, he goes into a fringy rage and smashes the beast with his war hammer before getting out of the way in case more thorns come flying from him. Keyleth sidles up and uses the cure wounds on Trinket, picking the bear back up before crushing a spark stone, something that they got from, they acquired from the fire, Ashari, uh-huh. uh, which causes her hands to burst into flames. Following this, she shifted into a saber-toothed tiger form known as Minxie, whose claws were still flaming thanks to the spark stone.
2: Yeah, it had been an item that she'd gotten from passing her uh, hmm, Aramente stage in the fire plane, yep. but had not hitherto decided who was going to get the ability to use it, because it's a one-time thing.
0: Yep, and it apparently turns, uh, gives uh, her the ability to light her hands on fire and do so in any form that she takes.
2: Yeah, basically addition, additional fire damage if you're using unarmed or natural weapons, I think, basically.
0: Yep, mm-hmm. And it makes it for an interesting addition to sort of a, a an interesting way uh, thematically to sort of level up her druid powers.
2: So um, kind of like what you want for your werewolf. Hmm?
0: Kind of, yes. Except for my werewolf, it's lightning and yes, over, mm. but you know, take what you can get. Um, Tiberius, piloted by Matt, uses stone skin on himself and takes a more defensive posture at the back of the group.
2: Always nice to see a DM who can really just get in touch with what his player would actually do when the player is absent. <laughs>
0: Uh, I, I feel like I feel like at this particular point it was a letdown because I feel like Orion would have immediately flown into the fray rather than getting behind people. But yes,
1: <laughs> and done and done four spells <laughs> that turn attempted, uh, attempted to do. Yes, yeah, tried, tried to do, um, including three that broke the first one's concentration, but didn't, and un- but but then got frustrated when that happened.
0: Stone skin actually isn't a concentration spell, I don't think. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, So, Vax, activating his boots of haste, rushes to flank the beast and assail it with a barrage of daggers, which is followed by Scanlon summoning Bizby's clenched fist to punch at the lizard. Missing, but at least he gets the hand out there, and then he removes himself from the line of fire, inspiring Grog, who is better than bad. He's good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> which is what? The old Slinky song
0: or something? Right? I, I actually don't know what the reference there is. So, if anybody else knows, please feel free to. Um I don't remember the full Oh no wait wait wait
2: wait yeah.
0: Uh no it's a it's a Ren and Stimpy
2: reference, I think, actually. He's
0: big and tall and made of wood. He's better than bad, he's good.
2: Yep. Yeah, it's a Ren and Stimpy reference, I think. Yeah, the log song. That's what it was.
0: Okay. Um so that that's the inspiration that Scanlon used uh to to our 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 bit of meta humor for the day. Um not the last mount, but the beginning of it. Uh, Percy goes to fire again, but his gun misfires, just lodging one of the barrels from his pepper box instead of firing. And in the movie version of this, this is where we have sort of a cinematic pan around from behind Percy as he aims the gun. The camera pans from behind him. He pulls the thing. It clicks. The barrel falls off, and then it stops looking up his arm at him as he gets a confused look.
1: That would be the Joss Whedon version. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, Yes, indeed.
0: Josh does like his pan arounds. He Um, likes his panoramas
1: or build to really climactic things, and then it it goes wrong.
0: Yeah, that too. Mm -hmm. Both of those things. And this is both of them put together, Uh, which causes him, obviously, to lose use of the gun. So Percy very hastily scrambles to grab the piece of his gun and get behind cover. Uh, The beast bites at Vax, uh, who uncannily dodges to take half damage and then constricts Grog with its tail. Vex tries to get out of melee range, getting bit in the process, but still manages to get to back up far enough to fire arrows at the creature. Grog bursts out of the constriction and smashes the beast once more. Keyleth in her tiger form mauls it several times. And Tiberius uses telekinesis to attempt to attack with his spinning blade. Ah, here's the Tiberius we all know and love. Um, (laughs) Missing, but Vex makes up for it with a few more dagger strikes. Scanlan jabs it in the eye, out of Digby's hands, and sings, Pour some Scanlan on you to Percy. to give him some inspiration, and also gets closer. <sighs> Scannon continuing to be creepy. Uh, Percy then takes, uh, snaps the pistol back together, fires twice, hitting once, and then misfiring again on the second shot. Uh, the creature maneuvers around again, to lightning blast Grog and Keyleth, knocking Keyleth out of her minxy form uh before vex fires off a few more arrows and grog finishes the creature off with a barrage of blows rendering its head into a pile of gunk um and then at, i think at that point there was a bit of a this you know a bit of a character sort of like how do you get a barbarian to stop their rage aspect which ended up with vex uh tickling grog's chin and saying lullaby lullaby
1: <laughs>
0: i mean which worked apparently.
2: It's no l- more nonsensical than "Hey, big fella, sun's coming down."
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> Marvel uh, references. To be fair, one of those was clearly a post, uh, a, a a a programmed phrase specifically put in. One of those was created on the fly.
0: <laughs> I will <wouldn't laughs> leave you to guess which one. Uh, all right, so that so I read that fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Took me two minutes, five minutes, about that. That entire section in the actual show took an hour.
1: I mean, <laughs> that's combat in that's combat in a D and D scene, especially when you have as many players as. Um, as critical role does. I it's mean, true. we've experienced this, particularly, I think, in in the larger games and going going final show film specific here, but in like the Grand Terra games in Eberron, you get you know in a three hour session, maybe a fight. And a little interaction if you're maybe, – maybe two fights if you do – if the first fight goes really, really well. Um yeah. That's just sort of the nature of of the old joke that, you know, D&D, the one game where um, – where uh, a, a two-week a week journey second fight, takes right. – <laughs> Yeah. A 30-second fight takes three hours, and a three-hour journey takes 30 seconds. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Time is fluid here.
0: Yes. Time is very fluid. But it's actually something that I wanted to bring up because uh so recently I've gone back and watched slash listened to a, t- a discussion about uh Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. Okay. Um, and I wanted to and, and, and The movie. Uh, the movie, yes.
1: Okay. Um We'll technically call it that.
2: Sure.
0: It, it certainly is a movie. You I say
2: actually, final fantasy. And all I think is anime characters doing action shit. I don't know if this is a video game or a film, maybe both at the same time. I've never played any of them. So, you know, well,
0: that's, that's your loss, but I, it, that's what I hear that's, mm-hmm. that aside. Um, it got me interested in a discussion about particular types of narrative storytelling, uh, which is in final fantasy, Advent children, or Final seven, Advent children, the movie, yep. um, it's, it's, it's actually quite neatly patterned after what you, what you might term the typical D and D three hour session, uh, which is two thirds of it are conversation. And then one third of it is fighting. Yep. Uh, the first two thirds of the movie is dialogue, plot, emotion, interaction, travel, journey, references. And then the last third of it is fight begins, Fight ends. Credit rolls. Um, and, and I'm curious what from a from a from a movie perspective more than anything else because in in film and TV it can it's a lot more easily managed right. Um, in a film perspective, how much time, uh, is how much time devoted to action sequences or fighting is too much time?
1: So it's interesting that you (laughs) mentioned that because this is a common thing that you see when certain film franchises, and I'm not, I I will preface this by saying, I'm not saying that these franchises are good, (laughs) but certain film franchises always get shit for we want to see X. And instead you had to throw these human characters in that we don't care about and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm speaking specifically about two franchises, the Transformers franchise and the alien, the, the, the two alien versus predator films that were released. Yeah. These were very, very common complaints about these. We don't want to see these boring, these boring human characters who are clearly just (laughs) thrown in there so you can have plot exposition. We want robots punching. (laughs) Yes. We want robots punching and we want, um, or we want, you know, Xenomorphs fighting, fighting Yaucha. Um, (laughs) the problem with that is there, if all you have in your film is just combat sequences, then you don't have a movie. You have an episode of Dragon Ball Z taken to even an extreme that Dragon Ball Z won't go to. Um and it it doesn't work. Um now those films, yes, the human characters are bad. But the human characters are the the, the Human characters aren't a problem because they're the human characters. It's because they're poorly written and they're not made to be as interesting as the creature designs for the otherwise emotionless, dialog characters. And yes, I am including the Autobots and Decepticons in that. No, <laughs> um, hey, so not wrong. There is... Dung I love, I love action, uh, hardcore action films as much as everybody. One of my absolute favorite action films is Shoot 'em Up, which is basically a, an 80, 90 minute long action sequence with dialogue interspersed in between. But you do need plot. You do need, uh, a narrative plot. You need emotional stakes added in to all of those action scenes i think one of the examples of a film that did the super long action you know the the extended action sequences right except besides shoot 'em up uh, and one pro- perhaps more people have seen is pacific rim
2: i was desperately hoping that was going to be your example
1: yes because that is that is again it's a it is a it is an action spectacle fans wet dream uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And yet there's plot in there and there are emotional stakes and there
0: there's are character
2: development. None character of the characters are cookie cutter. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That was actually um, interesting cuz that was that was going to be my 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 example of the opposite which is in 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 the in actually I love Pacific Rim. I kind of wish there had been less character in it and more robots punching kaiju.
1: I mean, but there is a lot of that. There is a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Metric, ton of that. And I feel like Del Toro balanced the story and the action probably better than any pure
2: blockbuster film has. And still my absolute favorite post-credits stinger scene ever.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is a great one. Um, So it's, you look at... I think the problem in a lot of these films when when you come across this sort of fan disappointment about this thing is how these films are marketed. So another great example of where it went wrong on the other side of of uh, the the nonstop action sequences is Batman versus Superman. Hmm. Batman versus Superman was built up for months as. These two iconic DC characters going head to head. It's a, that happened for about six minutes in the movie. <laughs> and it was an almost two and a half hour movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was not the, it wasn't even the best part about the movie. Um, <laughs>
0: build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, drop. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that can come into play in this. I feel like marketing plays a lot, uh, a big factor in terms of expectation and then how you react to the film after that. Um But it's a very hard balance to figure out where to where to find that that perfect sweet spot. And it's obviously it's not going to be the same from film to film. Or television oh, also, show to television
0: show. It also changes because as just as an exa- going back to critical role in this particular episode and uh, in, in most of the episodes, I don't mind watching the fight scenes. Even no, not they're at really all. long The first time I watch them, right. When I'm going back yes. to write down a, a plot synopsis, they get irritating very quickly. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to lie.
1: When I'm li- when when I'm watching these rewatching for either. For this, or there are times I just want to rewatch an episode that I really liked. I zone. I largely zone out during the during the act, the fight scenes. Right. There are great moments, and there are great you know the the interaction between the players is fun, and there are interesting character moments that I'll tune back in for. But for the most part, that's that's not why I go in to watch this show.
2: No. Um, And for something like Critical Role, especially as because, you know, there's plenty of campaigns out there, some of them streamed, I'm sure, um, that are very much more of a constant dungeon crawl, kick down the door, beat the shit out of whatever we find. Critical Role isn't like that. Critical Role, I think, focuses a lot more on its narrative, on its characters, on the individual development and the personal interactions and the relationships established both in with the members of the group itself and between them and the NPCs that Matt creates. And I think I agree with both of you that the first time you watch an episode, there's a level of interest in those combat moments because... The, it is a good way that to illustrate the the characteristics of the the various players, um, and there's that level of uncertainty of oh what's going to happen yes. up against. Once you go back to see it, you already are aware of that character expression and development. You're already aware <laughs> of the result, and combat is by its very nature the slowest part and the most restrictive part of of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, and like, I know a ton of people who are like, yeah, I'd happily play a game of pickup basketball, but I'm not going to sit there and watch basketball. It's not nearly as much fun. And I think a lot of people can fall into that same uh, sort of mindset when it comes to tabletop RPG combat as well.
0: It's a very interesting balance to try, because like I said, even even even. When you – when you first – there are very few things that when you first experience it, you're really excited about it. And then when you second – when you experience it for a second time, it's so drastically different.
2: Right. And I think as far as the balance between how much action versus how much character development and sort of interactive – um you you put into a into a property it's very largely dependent on what type of story you're trying to tell you know if somebody said hey i just saw i've got a great idea for a movie it's going to be non-stop action it's an adaptation of sense and sensibility you're gonna kind of look at them weird Oh yeah, um, you well, know it might be awesome now it might be awesome, but you know but there's that expectation of no, no that's 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 a piece of literature that is completely based around social interaction, but you're going to make it all fight seed, you know, whereas something like John Wick, on the other hand. Um, you know, massively well done, gorgeous, you know, I mean, there's plenty of things that are nonstop action just because apparently they didn't know how to have anybody say anything and they're kind of crappy movies. Uh, but there's ways to make, you know, packed to the gills action nonstop. That's very, very well executed, artistic, uh, sophisticated in its own way, you know, and then you've got things in the middle. Um, you know, uh, for some reason the pirates movies are jumping out in my brain. You know, where you've got inter- about half and half, honestly. You know, and obviously there's a lot, there's there's a slant towards the action even in the character scenes because you know you're you're getting to see people clumsily stumble their way through uh, colonial era <clears throat> Caribbean villages and whatnot, but there's still that that level of of inner character drama. Besides the times when the swords are out and the cannons are going on.
0: It's interesting because uh, talking about John Wick, because that's John Wick is. John Wick consistently has been the highest amount of praise I've ever heard anybody give the God of War storyline. Right,
2: pretty much, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, yes.
2: I mean, Kratos didn't
1: have a dog, from what I'm aware of.
0: and daughter, <laughs>
1: <laughs> dog dog has better emotional impact, right? Um, um,
2: there's a reason that the trope is called "kick the puppy," not "kick yes. the wife and child." Um, like I,
1: I can't count how many <laughs> how many films I've seen were that you know gladiator and other films right like that, no that's exactly they where, they where i lose was their life and, ki- and people are like yeah that really you know i totally oh, yeah that and then john wick had was like <laughs> i had to warn people <laughs> like, bear in mind warn before, you, before now, you watch this a make dog you get me. shot and killed
0: well and I'll, I'll tell you why uh that resonates more with people because most people in this world have lost a dog Yep. Or a cat or Uh a pet of some kind. Not most people in this world have lost their wife and child. Yeah. Like, sure, there are a lot of people that, that that counts on. There's billions of us on this planet. So, yes, there's certainly a percentage of the population for which that applies. But the percentage for which losing a pet applies is far greater and thus resonates far more with people than losing family members that we barely see, mm-hmm. uh, which which I find, I always I, I, I find that to be particularly interesting um, in, in that yeah. regard. But yeah, like. Uh, it's it's it is a challenge you know figuring out the appropriate action to plot or where to, or, or how to uh, finesse the plot through the action scenes and, and to critical girls uh credit not necessarily right now but certainly later on in the series as the series goes on they get better and better about weaving that plot through the battle. Oh
1: yeah, for real. Uh-huh, uh-huh,
2: uh-huh. Like
0: as the series goes on, the battle Even
2: just out. in this story arc honestly. Yeah,
0: yeah <laughs> even just in this arc. As the as the series goes on, the fight scenes get more and more tolerable upon repeated viewance. So, view yep. view. No, uh, for so, real. And yeah. So that mm-hmm. is something to keep an eye on, you know, that it, they there it, there are ways to even though uh, uh, and 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 for those of you that might be looking to run like actual plays or do stream D and D, don't shy away from the combat. It's no. a, like don't don't worry about the audience's viewership of enjoyment. If you guys are having fun, the audience is going to have fun. Um, yep, but but, it, but it's do things do like see it mm-hmm. a, do see it as a place to improve your craft.
2: Right, yeah, because there's there's moments like this, because the the fights in this episode are very much sort of feel like the classic random encounter thing. You know, the party is going from point A to point B, and some completely unrelated to the plot shit, at least as far as we can tell, happens along the way. Yeah. You know, otherwise you can skip over a journey with maybe two or three dice rolls at the most, or none at all. You know, yeah, you guys... Start hiking out on the trail, and three days later, you arrive at Whitestone.
0: Yeah, ta-da! It's you know. the, it's, the, it's the it's the it's the it's the narrative uh, impetus of you should only be at least a movie. In movies and games, when you're telling a story, you're supposed to be telling. You, theoretically, you're supposed to be telling the most interesting or most relevant parts of this person's story. Right. So because, you talk about John Wick's dog dying. You don't talk about John Wick doing the laundry unless John Wick doing the laundry is particularly important to setting up his character.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. And because in a film, in books, and most other forms of entertainment, real estate is highly valuable. You've got a certain amount of time or a certain number of pages. So putting in unnecessary stuff means you will then have to necessarily cut out other important things and with a with a with a narrative prioritization you need to tell the most important things and if you've got filler that be that's usually seen as a sign of poor craftsmanship or lazy composition Mm
0: -hmm. so yeah writers directors anybody in sort of creative space don't see uh, combat, as, or, or, or particularly bulky, what you might think of as unfun, like, shopping sections or anything like that, as something to be removed because it could be boring, look at it instead as a challenge to make it interesting. Right. And make it relevant. Um. So, uh, after killing the creature. Uh, the part takes a short rest, harvesting parts from it, healing themselves and repairing Percy's gun. Over the course of the rest, they determine that this creature is a behir, and harvest its lightning-breath gland so that Percy can use it for a project later, as well as some scales for armor-making. As they gather themselves and look about the area, Tiberius determines that he needs to leave and make some additional preparations before teleporting away after a brief, uh, after a brief period of meta-conversation on the nature of missing players and taunting the DM. As a note, players, taunting the DM can be funny, it can also be deadly. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: carefully. I can. Um, as we find out in just a few moments, uh, Vex concentrates on her primeval awareness and determines that there are a number of dragon kin in the mountains of the north, but that they shouldn't need to worry about it so long as they're continuing towards Whitestone and not veering off drastically in the wrong direction. Um as they, as they continue on, the twins spot from afar a man-made outcropping, and Grog, of all people, recognizes it as a stone giant's fortress. This massive silhouette in the distance. With this revelation, the party continues moving on at a much slower and stealthier pace, climbing along the mountainside to avoid detection by the potential giants of the fortress. As they approach, they do not detect any movement inside, instead seeing the doors at the castle broken and open. That is, broken and and open, not broken open, for a very specific reason. <laughs> With this knowledge, Keyleth shifts into a bat and goes exploring. Inside the fortress, Keyleth finds signs of a fight, dried blood and shattered furniture, but no signs of bodies. Sam taunts the DM, causing the party to turn on him abruptly and offer him as a sacrifice to the gods. <laughs> that is Sam, not Scanlan. Yeah. <laughs> um as we were just mentioning about don't taunt the DM. Uh, Keyleth continues to explore the fortress and finding more signs of violence. uh, She heads to the front door and shifts back to her elven form before calling in the rest of the party to continue investigating. They determine that the fortress was ransacked about two or three months ago. And in the investigation, discover some gold, a potion and a magical uh, and a magical bow that Scanlon jokingly says he'll use as a hammock. Uh, there's not much else that they find. They do determine uh, that probably roughly five, maybe four or five, maybe six giants could have lived here. Um, which we'll come back to later. Um, <clears throat> uh as Vax attempts to attune to her new bow, Grog and Vax step out onto the porch and keep an eye on their surroundings. They see a flock of birds circling around and attempting to not be seen. Vax crouches down low and becomes stealthy. Grog, rolling a natural one, calls out loudly that there are birds, which causes them to begin to close in. Uh, as they get closer, it becomes apparent that they are a murder of crows and not just a random group of birds. The group hides inside the house, uh, but Keyleth wants to do something. I'm still not certain why. Uh, but summons a sleet storm to pelt the crows, some of which fall. And then another action that I'm not 100% certain as to the why of uh, Grog, uh, uh, Grog runs out, grabs one that hit the porch and bites its head off. <coughs> <coughs> like you yeah. do. Why not? I, yeah. That's the only real explanation I can think of for either of those. And, and while that, well, for comic relief purposes, those of you that want to be comedy writers, because why not is a, is is a is a good enough reasoning for uh for a comedy bit. And that's clearly what this was. This was them being silly yeah. and having fun and, and doing a thing. But for all of you serious uh uh would-be Tolkien's out there, have a reason. It's not that hard. Just have a reason. Yeah. Yep. That's all that's all it needs. Just a reason. <laughs> um reasons
1: are generally good.
0: So yeah, Scrog rips the head off of the crow with his teeth, silencing it as the rest of the birds fly off. Uh, At this point, the group decides to stealth out, leaving leaving the fortress behind and approaching a forest beyond which they can see the castle of Whitestone, Percy's home. Percy determines that they're in the parchwood forest which encompasses the valley uh, in the valley in which Whitestone sits. as they look on Keyleth asks Percy if he knows any of any secret passageways which he does the one specifically he used to escape. Uh, he details its location but suggests that, that they look into the town first uh, to see how things are before attempting to use a hidden entrance as they progress as they progress through the forest they hear the sound of howling in the distance a pack of wolves in the woods somewhere. Keeleth and Scanlan polymorph and fly up to take a look around, uh, finding a hunting party and uh, searching the forest nearby. Meanwhile, the primary party continues to hide, coming close to getting discovered but managing to stay hidden. While hidden, several of them try to see the hunting party, and with a natural 20, this episode is where Talison officially dubs his dice the Golden Snitch. I believe it had been referenced one or two times prior to that, but it was this one where he goes, you know what, I think I'll keep that name. And thus, episode 28 of Critical Role, The official birth of the golden snitch. (laughs) Mark that down. (laughs) The date, 10-15-2015, will live on in infamy. (laughs) And then some. Mm -hmm. Um, Percy doesn't recognize the hunter, just that it's a slightly older woman who appears to be hunting for food, not for them. Uh, Meanwhile, the primary party... uh, Sorry. Whoops. Uh, not them. I actually went up a paragraph. (laughs) Interestingly, it's this exact same period, like, like, point on both paragraphs. Interesting. Um, Scanlan and Keeleth, meanwhile, continue on towards the city, spotting the murder of crows again as they make a large pass over the entire valley. The crows seem to be, uh, looking for something outside in the forest area, so they use this opportunity to go invisible, uh, via Scanlan's magic, and sneak in. Um... They first they go and look at the sun tree, which is the big tree in the middle of the town, um, and find that it seems to be uh, gnarled and old, potentially dead, with several bodies hanging off of it as a gallows. They then continue on. Uh, they then um, uh, they also see that uh, most of the buildings are closed or empty, with some people working in the field, fields, um, and there seems to be there are eight bodies, specifically of uh, various ages, hanging from the bay, hanged from the branches. In addition, they spot six zombified giants roaming the town on patrol. I now hmm. I wonder now, where those boys came from. <laughs> I now hit that little... At this point in the paragraph, there's a small one next to the... Uh,
2: giants, <laughs> it's the <a> footnote. <laughs> which
0: says to reference a footnote. And we go down to that footnote, and we talk once again about foreshadowing. But this time we get to talk about foreshadowing in a much more immediate sense. Mm-hmm. uh uh-huh. Um, so this is the kind of, this is the kind of foreshadowing that it's, it's most often referred to as, um, uh, it's like audience aware, like audience awareness. I'm trying to remember what the exact term is, but it's, um, it's where the audience knows something. The audience here being the, 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 the people watching and the players, uh, that the characters don't yet know. Um, which is you know, there's this giant, there's this empty giant fortress. I wonder what could be there. Oh, look, there are these six giant, there are these six roaming undead giants. Where the characters that are still in the woods don't don't yet know this dramatic irony. That's it, dramatic irony. Uh, while the characters yes. hiding in the woods don't yet know this don't yet know it. We, the audience, and Keyleth and Scanlan, can now put two and two together. I don't think they do, but not not quite yet. But we can now put two and two together and go, oh. Empty giant fortress, undead giants. It seems the Briarwoods have been busy. <laughs> and and this is the sort of thing where, uh, as a writer, whenever you're... This isn't necessary at all. It's not like like that little bit with the giant fortress isn't necessary at all. Right. They could have but... just had some undead giants
2: run around the town.
0: Exactly. But what it does is it ties a little bit of a, it ties a little bit of information, sort of inherent in the description and inherent in the world, that gives you this sense of weight of reality of uh, of of a living and breathing world. Be- rather than you go to the town, there are six roaming giants. Okay, so the okay, so the vampires have undead giants. Um, you first found a giant fortress found signs of a struggle and giants missing and giants having been very violently attacked in some form or fashion within this dwelling and then you continue on for a little bit and find undead giants so now rather than just the vampires have undead giants you have a mental story that was never told yep you and it
2: it communicates a great deal of information because it's like all right you're not roaming through just a completely unsettled wilderness. There are things that live here. Cool. New information. Uh, You know, you come and you find this structure that's been vacated. Uh, You know, this is a, and, and, violently so. All right. So this is not just an inhabited land. This is an inhabited land of conflict. All right. So, and then you find out what happened to the inhabitants of this location that you had been out at before. So now that you're getting some actual personal narrative to the former inhabitants of this land, um, and you find that they've been, you know, basically turned into undead servants by your adversary. Now you've got an idea, both of the capability and of the power level. of your adversary so you're starting to ratchet up the tension even more now um you know it's not just oh we might randomly stumble across some giants it's no somebody's already randomly stumbled across the giants and they decided you know what that's usable um and and you know it's just it's it's increasing the level of of involvement that both the players and the audience have with the narrative now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also, like I said, it's giving you a secondary side story without ever saying a damn thing about the side story. Right. Mm-hmm. In a lot of video games, uh, video games, typically the, the one, um, you'll get, you'll find audio logs and you'll occasionally have flashbacks that explicitly detail side events that you had no part in. That you, the player, or you, the viewer, had no part in?
2: All the books in Elder Scrolls games. Yeah, yep. <laughs> um,
0: The Elder Scrolls themselves in Elder Scrolls games. Um, the
2: entire Elder Scrolls series of games by itself. Sorry, you could yes. go into... You could get you, you can continue days on, yeah. of a conference discussions on that.
0: Um, mm. But what this has done is now we have told the story to ourselves just from the context clues. And it might be different for everybody, but for for anybody that puts these together, generally you get the idea that, oh, so at some point in the past, the Briarwoods went out hunting and found a giant fortress, probably at night. And they went inside, probably introduced themselves, because we find out that the giant door was broken outward, not inward. Maybe were invited inside or convinced their way inside, said, oh, you all look look nice and useful. Would you come serve us? Some sort of conflict broke out and the Briarwoods came out victorious. And in addition to that, now have giant servants and their battle was so immense and so, so, you know, Titanic that they destroyed all the furniture and even the door of this stone giant fortress. And then, When they look at the stone giants, they get sort of descriptions of, you know, here's one that's missing an arm and here's one that's, you know, really heavily damaged with various things. And just from the description of six giants roaming around and previously the encounter of an empty giant fortress, you have now filled in this whole extra chapter of information that wasn't ever said.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's some gorgeous narrative comp, uh, construction mm-hmm. there on Matt's part, and yeah, one of one of I think the the most subtle and skilled moments of storytelling to date in the in the series thus far.
0: And it's it's actually very reminiscent for anybody who has played Dark Souls. This is the kind of storytelling. This is the kind of storytelling that runs throughout from Softwares uh, games. You never are told explicitly what happens. You are instead given context clues that you have to then uh, work backwards from in order right. to put piece together the story of the you're, world. You're
2: given conclusion and aftermath with enough detail that you can then reconstruct the exactly. previous narrative.
0: And you yeah. can never reconstruct it perfectly so everyone's reconstruction is going to be kind started. of backshadowing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I, which, which is a fascinating amount of story, which is a fascinating way of telling a story. You're telling a story from the conclusion backwards, rather Mm -hmm. than from the uh, inciting inciting instant forwards.
2: Yep. Now Uh, everybody go watch memento. Hmm.
0: (laughs) And you're doing it implicitly without, Mm -hmm. without ever, without ever saying anything. You're just by leaving these bits of information in the world, you're telling the story. That is a, wonderful way of storytelling for a number of reasons. A, it lightens your load. We were talking earlier about real estate. Uh, you know, we just got all of this information out of two, three sentences. Um, so it really helps clear up you on the real estate department. Um, but also, it makes the audience feel smart. And that is one of the best ways to keep an audience engaged. If an audience is watching a thing and they come to what they think they came to this conclusion from the clues that were left behind and the clues that were left behind seem to agree with their conclusion, then they feel smart.
1: Yeah. And Whether that's some,
0: led them that way or not. That's something that is always,
1: uh, I think is a struggle for a lot of, a lot of storytellers. Because I'm going to go to film again, because obviously that's where that's where I tend to focus a lot of stuff. But there are certain filmmakers who really like to make it, who really like to make themselves look smart. This comes from people both who I both like, like Stephen Moffat from Doctor, uh, who showrunner for Doctor Who, to people I really, really, really don't like. Um, and by this, I'm talking about, um, uh, Richard Kelly, uh, which you might not be familiar with the name, but he's the guy mm-hmm. who did Donnie Darko. Yeah. Um, which I know everybody loves that film. I think it's one of the most overrated pieces of eh. shit. <laughs> it's, re- and so he does this all the time. He makes films that seem really, really, he throws a bunch of random shit out there. And then when you're watching, you're like, "Oh, that's really smart of him." And it's self-aggrandizing bullshit. Um, the correct way to go about—I'm not going to say it's—you can you can do stuff that allows you to be praised as, as coming up with really clever stuff, but the correct way of, in my mind, of of writing a story is. To not, not, not butter up your audience, but, but let them figure out stuff that's actually there on their own. And then they feel like they've figured out because that invests them more emotionally in the storyline.
0: And for, um, uh, for the game masters and GMs out there, you have a secret that makes this really easy for you. Mm-hmm. Your players are your audience. And they're there with you as you're writing the story. Encourage table talk. Oh, yeah. Because quite often, and and this has happened several times in Grand Terra as well, um, I will have an idea. And as the idea is unfolding, one of you fuckers will come up with a better idea, yep. thinking oh, I God, already yes. came up with it.
2: <laughs> and then you just co op that shit. <laughs> roll on
0: through with it. <laughs>
2: That's yeah. the way yeah. it
1: was the whole time.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. like uh, from the from the Walking Shadow Chronicle, our vampire game from last year, I had a guy running around murdering people for a ritual. And then just because I had sort of randomly done this, there was this weird correlation of he'd killed two people on a second story, and then he killed three people on a third story. And I didn't do that on purpose, but then people were, you guys latched onto that shit. And I was like, yes, yes, he's doing this in an arithmetic sequence because the ritual requires it. And that (laughs) made it so much easier on my storytelling, plus made it look much cleverer than I had initially anticipated it coming out.
0: And it also yeah. makes uh, it also makes the players and coincidentally, uh, in comparison, the audience feel good because they 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 were putting together. It's nice a, to be right. A, a, it's nice to be right. But <laughs> they were putting together clues that you had either consciously or subconsciously mm-hmm. been putting down, mm-hmm. and and recalling information and thinking about it being engaged with yep. the story, and. That's sort of a little reward, it's like i it I was engaged, so I was able to sort of call this coming along
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and again it's not it's not it's not uh um uh trying to suck up to your audience, it is more specifically it's trying to make your audience feel a sense of accomplishment, yeah, it's just um, engaging with the audience yeah which which is a which is a way of engaging, which gets them more invested in your storyline if they feel yeah. like. And whether this is a D and D game where the players are involved and like guns out or the audience, or whether it's your audience, literally your audience, Um, if they feel like they've that there's a, a sense of accomplishment and they're more interested in the story, they're gonna seek that shit out. That's how shows like Lost, mm-hmm. which granted that show went. Uh, it started really island, well. Yeah, jumped off the island and swam deep into the the deep end and never looked back. But shows like, like Lost or um, Westworld, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, other shows like that where you get people who are just seeking out all of these details and then yeah. trying to figure out what does this all mean. If you just keep doing and I think that's where the line between the, try the, the, the creator trying to make them feel themselves look smart or make the audience feel accomplished is if you don't reward that at certain points, then it's all about you trying to say, Hey, look how cool I am. And not as much about the audience saying, Hey, I've done this. Look what I, you know, I awesome. I want to see what's next. Right and and if you're
2: if you're if you're approaching your audience with the mindset that i'm creating something that will make people think with the intent that some people or and hopefully everybody eventually probably close to or at the conclusion of the narrative will figure this out that is a much healthier perspective than going into something saying i'm creating a puzzle and I personally believe I'm smarter than anybody who's ever going to watch this and I'm going to make sure nobody can figure it out until I decide it's time for them to.
0: Yep. Yeah. That and and it's a lot harder to do that with movies because obviously right. have a full movie you know, in the can before anybody ever sees it. Yes. Uh, But with, with narrative storytelling, with, with, with cooperative storytelling like this, it's a lot more fluid. So Just, just, I think bearing in mind that while you can certainly play as a, as the game master, as a storyteller, while you can certainly play into the idea that you're the smartest person in the room, know that you're not. Right. And let that be true. And, Everyone I found to be okay with that <laughs> tends to, yeah, and everyone tends to have a more fun time that way mm-hmm. because everybody can be the smartest person in the room at some point, yep um, so going back to critical role, <laughs> yes, they spot six zombified giants roaming around the town on patrol, and we have this little mental click 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 connection. Um, of what happened to those giants, causing the citizens of the town to keep a wide berth whenever they go by. Keyless and Scanlan land, so Scanlan can eavesdrop on some farmers, listen to them discuss their poor crops and that they are apparently giving in tribute to a Sir Carrion. Uh, Carrion being the least subtle name. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I will this-
1: bring up the name Bane that we have mentioned <laughs> in non-podcast material earlier this week.
0: Is also very unsubtle. But Bane's a god. Gods aren't meant to be subtle.
2: Uh, that's fair. I thought Bane was a criminal from in Gotham.
0: That too. Also not a subtle criminal. Nope. Yeah, but okay, superhero
1: and supervillain names are another matter entirely.
0: It's true, it's true. This is a random tax collector <laughs> of some kind. Uh, after listening for a while, Scanlan attempts to return to Keyleth, but is unable to climb fast enough. Instead, he dimension doors back to Keyleth, and the two of them take off back towards the party, where they bed down for the night. Before going to sleep, they make plans for the next day. They want to sneak into they want to sneak to the secret passage and see if it's usable or not. And if it seems dangerous, instead head into town and see if they can find allies against the Briarwoods. They also talk about reviving the Sun Tree and potentially bringing the influence of Pelor back to the city. Eventually, the discussion turns to thoughts of rebellion as Percy hits upon an idea of raising a rebellion against the Briarwoods, using the faithful of the town as a catalyst via the resurrection of the Pel- of Pellor's Sun Tree. Sneak in, find cover, heal the tree, take out the giants one by one, and rid the town of the Briarwoods. After some shit talk, referencing specifically the use of Scanlan's ability to scry after drinking a very specific <sighs> coffee, uh, they go to bed and awake the next morning to put their plan into action. <laughs> They head into town and find an abandoned building in order to set up shop, with Vax stealthing ahead and the rest of the party undergoing another seeming to look like commoners. Even with with their stealth, they are still noticed, so shifting gears, Vax asks a random person for work on a farm, Vax providing the backup of our farm burned down, and receiving the response of, you poor people shouldn't be here. With that and an ominous welcome to Whitestone, the party continues farther into town, eventually finding their way to the Sun Tree. There they see the hanged bodies of people seemingly specifically made up to look like Vox Machina, left as a message for would-be heroes. By the way, really good message. Yeah.
1: This was one of uh, – and this, this is one of, one of, of those iconic you know, shots. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because on the – well, it, it, iconic in terms of like uh, an in-universe, in quote-unquote – uh, a sequence because i I don't know anybody who has watched who who has watched this show, who has gotten to this point who doesn't have that image, however it is pictured in their head indelibly stuck in there, and it's never leaving. Oh, but yeah. also what was actually portrayed on the screen as Marisha figures it out just a moment before everybody else, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and her
0: reaction is amazing. Oh, it's priceless. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and it's it's always nice as a storyteller to put what put a very obvious conclusion behind layers of obfuscation, uh huh. Um, so that at that moment of realization, you get a really great reaction.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh And this is another great example also of Matt's ability to lay it out very cinematically because he doesn't really, he doesn't overplay his hand here in terms of like a lot of times, like if you, if I was picturing this as like a TV show or a, or, or a film, um, There would be two ways to do the, well, there'd be several ways, but there would be two primary ways to do this. The right way would be to sort of show you a long distance shot, which happens. Um, and and you see sort of the bodies and then you see them approach. You never actually show the people until you see the cat, you see the, the protagonist's reaction. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of what happens here um in in such an effective way because it's it's not spelled out for you but enough clues are there that the audience figures out about the exact same time as the players do
0: and a bit of the behind a bit of little behind the scenes knowledge this was the inspiration behind the everything is fine village in grand terror rebirth
2: I wasn't part of that game when that happened. (laughs) I can Uh, see that.
0: For those of you that might not know what I'm talking about, this was a village in our Thursday evening actual play series, The Grand Terror Rebirth, where the adventurers sort of teleported to a fairly unassuming uh, farm village, uh, thinking to sort of look around for for cultist activity. And it was a fairly normal, you know, pretty upbeat Everything's, you know, everything's going fine, getting ready for a, getting ready for a festival uh, town. But so there was just there was just enough off about the town that they decided to investigate a bit further. When they did, they found that the town or some of the people were under some sort of blanket charms effect. Um. And upon removing the effect from one of the townsmen, they got sort of a split second no, 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 don't do that from the person that they removed the uh, uh, spell from just before they dropped dead. (laughs) Yep. Is this sort of, again, leaving very subtle clues, leaving... What might be an obvious conclusion once you stop and think about it long enough, just uh, just obfuscated enough that the players pull the veil back themselves. And the reaction, the big reaction narratively is from the players. Right. I I might be a little sick and twisted, but...
2: (laughs) Generally, if you're running a tabletop RPG you need to have at least a little bit of sick and twisted in order to make it work.
0: Oh yeah. In order to make it compelling. Uh Uh, So yes, the bodies left as a message for would be heroes. Eventually they spot what appears to be an abandoned tavern or inn nearby after spending an amount of time freaking up out about what they've seen. Um, and make their way inside, finding a fairly large but completely abandoned inn with a cellar and 20 rooms left open. Keyleth goes into the cellar and begins digging a tunnel to the tree. Meanwhile, Percy tries to make a delivery system for some parchment he had prepared the night before, black powder-soaked paper that, when lit, creates a burn scar wherever it's been laid, effectively a branding tool. This was the spark, as it were, for his rebellion idea. Uh-huh. Uh, Keyleth makes it to the tree, determines that it's actually dead via with plant spell, and prepares a hero's feast for the rest of the party. I know that sentence sounds awkward, but that's exactly what happens. Uh, <laughs> the party eats, and then Marisha goes, and then, or sorry, Keyleth goes back to the tree and begins the eight-hour process of using plant growth to revive the tree and enrich the lands around it, which is where the session ends. So, the, the, yeah, that's that's the end of the session, and and at this point, we're starting to shift gears quite a bit. There was a bit of there was a there, there has been a bit of sort of this darkness, just sort of at the edges of your vision, for the past twenty some odd episodes. Mm-hmm. Of but this is where we start to delve deep into the more gothic undertones. Yes, hmm.
1: I mean this is this is essentially the the fulcrum for the point where and. It certainly remains this after the fact in a lot of aspects. But from where it becomes just sort of the fun high adventure, people, you know, I- adventuries one adventures running around and having fun to the shit just got real. Uh-huh. Um to where it becomes really it really finds it's dramatic and and uh a narrative depth.
0: Yep. Yeah, and I feel like we're gonna have a lot more stuff to talk about going forward as we begin. Oh, yeah, the oh, night yeah. of the Briarwood arc
2: <laughs> for sure.
0: So yeah, uh, that's been critical thinking. Hope you guys enjoyed. And again, go back, uh, follow uh, me on Twitter at Johnny Bates to check out for the giveaway links that we the yep. giveaway link.
1: <laughs> I've shared those. Our uh,
0: Final Show Films Cognitive Merchants Gaming Accessories Giveaway. The first of four. Um, the first one being again a green leather dice cup. Uh, which is a very lovely. I have it right over here. It's 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 very very nice. I hope somebody wins it so that I stop being tempted to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: kind of creepy. I'm not going to lie. That's, That's an okay, excellent place go. to end a podcast. <laughs>
0: <Yep>. <laughs> Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. goodbye.